are in our third week or third Sunday of Advent, and we are going to tackle the topic of indestructible joy this morning. Our series in Advent is called Indestructible. It is the plan of God in the arrival of Christ, and it is a plan that cannot be thwarted, as we've talked about. It is truly an indestructible plan, and it presents in Christ a joy, a joy that is also indestructible, that cannot be thwarted, that is ours in Him. And so this morning, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about the joy that we have in Christ that is not happiness, it's not optimism, it's not just good feelings. You know, and it's not determined by anything other than our relationship in Christ and the story of Christmas. So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. And I hope that um, what we share this morning and what we hear from the word of God this morning would truly penetrate your heart. Um, even in the midst of difficulties in this season, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of suffering and afflictions. Um, that the joy of Christ transcends all of those things. And the joy of Christ that we see through the Christmas story and in the word of Christ comes and settles in the hearts of all who choose, of all who choose him. And that joy that comes in is something that's unexplainable. It's incalculable and it's inexpressible to a certain degree. But it transcends life. It transcends circumstances. It even transcends depression and sadness. Because I will be the first one to tell you that I can be sad and yet be joyful at the same time. That I don't have to trade my sadness for joy. But I can actually have both. My sadness can be determined by something that happens to me or my season that I'm in or seeing someone else go through something that is difficult but that does not destroy my joy. And so that's the, that's the tension we live in as Christians. That's the tension we live in. And that's the tension that's brought to bear and is magnified in the Christmas season. That whether things are going wonderful in life, whether things are, everything is clicking and everything's falling into place. You know? Joy is still there. Oh man, and when the season comes and it seems like nothing is going in your favor and it seems like God is the furthest person away and it seems like every circumstance in life seems to be one that affects you negatively, the promise of God in Christ is that you have joy. And so we're going to talk about that this morning in the scriptures. So I want to pray this morning before we do that and uh, I hope that um, the idea of joy impacts you tremendously. The gospel of joy impacts you tremendously this morning uh, so that you can weather every storm, so that you can find a sense of deliverance over circumstances in the beautifulness of the joy of Christ this morning. So let's pray before we dive in this morning. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you, God, for the power of your word. 
you say that it is your very word that is like a two-edged sword that pierces the heart of men, separating bone from marrow, piercing the deepest inward parts of the soul, and it is able to discern and distinguish the very motives and thoughts of us. It is able to read us like nothing else can. Your word and your truth in this book is, is something that we read, but it is the only book we read that reads us, that discerns us, that discerns the intentions of the heart. And so, God, I pray this morning, Lord, that as we dive in this morning, as we consider the truth of Christ, as we understand the Advent season and the joy that is inaugurated in Christ, God, that these truths, that this word would penetrate deep into the heart of every person here. God, that it would, in some way, you would grant us understanding and God, you would grant us transformation in the mind and you would cause a renewing in the heart that is predicated and built upon the truth of Christ and the truth of joy in this season. God, we ask for this work to be done by the power of the Spirit that lives in us. God, we ask that the work that is done is done through the power of the Spirit that brings illumination and understanding to the very words you have spoken, so that we can in every way grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of all, the Messiah who has come, the one who has brought and who has delivered us into an indestructible joy this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, so I've been asking you guys some questions to kind of grease the wheels a little bit. Like I said last week, you know, um, thinking about this time and the Advent season, we're thinking about a time that is really kind of characterized by anticipation. We've talked about this before. It's sort of a season that is exemplified by an arrival of something. It's typified by sort of an appearance, and that is Christ himself and it finds no greater expression this season than this idea of an anticipatory fervor that wells up in our hearts as we are anticipating something grand, something that has come, something magnificent that we've never seen before, and that is Christ himself. And so we're talking about the anticipation of things in this season and I've asked you guys a couple of times, like, what is it that you really look forward to in this Christmas season? What are some of the things you anticipate even six months beforehand? Last week we talked about someone said that they start playing Christmas music after the 4th of July. I don't know who that was. But someone said that, and I'm like, I'm like okay, that's, so that's, that's pretty ambitious. You know what I mean? Like, woo, 4th of July, I'm still, like, in beach mode. I don't know if I'm singing Christmas carols at the 4th of July, but... Um, some people anticipate Christmas that much. My question to you this morning is this. What do you actually look forward and you can't say opening gifts? That's off limits. What do you actually, that's the only answer you can't give. What do you guys look forward to on actually on the day of Christmas? Like what is the thing that you anticipate 
the most about that that day when you when you uh, when you get up? Yeah. Sorry, I, I have a hard I'm hard of hearing right now because my I'm still like my ears are still all messed up. So, who was that? Did someone say something back there? Oh, hey. No. <laughs> all right, I'll give it to you, babe. <laughs> That's always good, right? It's always fun to watch them do that. Yeah. All right, Deb. Yeah. What do you What do you look forward to? Ah, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a blessing, right? Christmas finds a way to get people together that you haven't maybe seen in a while, and being able to spend time with them, that's a good one, yeah. Brian, yeah. It is, absolutely, no question. It is, it is an anticipatory day where we celebrate the love of Christ, yeah, as he comes, yeah. Chad. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So what would be your favorite thing? What would be your quintessential Christmas dinner? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like Christmas to me. I mean, Thanksgiving to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Wendy, what do you got? And what for dinner? What for dinner? Did you say beef stew chowder? I'm sorry, I cannot hear anything. What did you say? Seafood chowder, okay. That sounds really good. I'll take some of that, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Scott, yeah, okay. See, anything chowder any day of the week, any time of the year, that works for me, absolutely. Just can't put milk in it. You have to put coconut milk in it for me. Anyway. I know. It's terrible. Hey, babe. Yeah. She got another one back there. <laughs> you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> hey, I will say full confession. I found a cranberry sauce I did like. Yeah, yeah. And I have Ingrid Libby to thank for it. She made an awesome cranberry sauce and gave me some. She's not here, but she's, uh, she's with the kids right now. Uh, she makes a cranberry sauce, if you guys are thinking about it, that has uh, citrus in it. I don't know what she does. She takes cranberry sauce, adds like orange or I don't know, something really good. And she made it during Thanksgiving. She, she put it in a little Tupperware. She sent it home with me. And I was like, oh, this is really good. I'll actually eat this cranberry sauce. So it was awesome. So if any of you guys don't like cranberry sauce, check out Ingrid. So Chris is one of those guys. So she had to find a way for Chris to eat cr cranberry sauce. But... All right, cranberry sauce. All right, maybe we'll do one more. Let's do one more. Anybody else? Uh, I can't. What do you got? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. the psyche of people is affected just by the season itself. Um, like you said, even if people aren't fully aware of the, of the point, you know, um, people are definitely like more open in that season to <laughs> maybe to be nicer. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so there's a lot of things we anticipate, right? A lot of things we anticipate about the season, a lot of things we anticipate about the actual day. You know, uh, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about how we anticipate songs when they come on the radio or when we put them on in our house and the smells of Christmas and the lights of Christmas. And there's like a light thing happening, like a light display. I don't know if you guys know this, in Cumberland or something. It's like a mile and a half or two miles of lights. Shannon wants to go check it out. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It's at the fairgrounds. If you guys are, if you guys are looking for a light show, I guess you're going to go there. So we're going to try to check that out, you know, at some point before Christmas time. There's just so many things that we celebrate and we look forward to. And that really is, like I said before, it is this idea that comes with uh, the idea of Advent, that we are anticipating and preparing for the coming of Christ. And when we're thinking about this, it's really a celebration. Um, we've talked about this. It's a celebration. Christmas is a celebration that's steeped in the emergence of this new reality of Christ's coming. It's a new covenant that Christ comes and establishes and inaugurates when he comes to the earth. It's an eternal promise that comes to its fulfillment that God has given us, that God has given his people. You think about the eternal promises of God. They all culminate and they come to its fullest expression and head in the coming of Christ at this time. It is God essentially um, doing what he said he's going to do. It is God in every way showing us the reliability of who he is. His faithfulness, his steadfast love, his unwavering commitment to his people, to those who have called upon his name. And it causes us with eager hearts to abound with an unexpressible joy, an unspeakable adoration towards the one who was promised, and that is Christ. And most, more than anything else, Advent heralds this. Advent heralds the indestructible plan of God. The indestructible plan of God and the arrival of Christ as earth receives her king. That's why we sing those songs and those words. Because Christ is the king of the earth. Christ is the king of everything. He is the king of the universe. He is the one that determines all things by the power of his word. He is the one that determines all things through his indestructible plan that cannot be altered or amended or changed. By any man. And so that is how we see the Advent season. It is God's indestructible plan. It is God's indestructible narrative. Because God has authored a story. And he's authored the story from eternity past, which no man can alter. And in the coming of Christ, we see that God is accomplishing with meticulous care and, and an impeccable precision every detail in accord with the purposes of his will he will not let anything happen that shall not and he will always accomplish everything according to his will and so as we consider this you guys this morning christ's coming from heaven 
in the Christmas story, we're presented with this truth that God alone holds the exclusive right to fulfill all that he has spoken. He methodically accomplishes all that he has proclaimed from eternity past through the working of this plan in the coming of Christ. Listen to what he says in Psalm 119, 89 through 91. It says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Think about that statement for a moment. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever, eternally, God has spoken and God speaks and what he speaks will forever live. He also says that all things are passing away. The earth is passing away. The heavens are passing away. But what will stand? It will be the eternal word of God that cannot be changed, altered, or destroyed. And he says this about his word, that it is firmly fixed in the heavens. In other words, as you look to the heavens, as you look to the sky, as you look to creation, as you look to the universe, and as you see the perfectness of God and the divine power of God, to put everything in its place and to maintain all things meticulously by his purposes. We see that the heavens declare the firmness of God's word because it does not change. And it is firmly fixed in the heavens as we see it. It is the fullest expression of God's ability to do all things he has determined. Your faithfulness, it says, endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day. Check this out. All things, all things are your servants. God has spoken and God has designed and determined that all that he has created, which is everything, is created for one purpose, and that is to serve him and to give him glory. And so this morning, as we sit here and consider and understand the Christmas story and the indestructible joy that comes through Christ, we are to know that we live with an indestructible joy, not for our happiness, but to bring Christ's glory. It is about Christ. The indestructible joy that we have in this season is not about making us feel better about our life. Because I can tell you right now, like I said, I can be sad. I can be discouraged. I can be disappointed. But I can still have joy. I can be thrown to and fro, knocked about left and right by life. But that does not determine my joy because it is indestructible. And so this morning when we think about us as servants of Christ, the whole earth serves Christ, the creation serves Christ, the universe serves Christ, the sun and the moon and the stars and all that is that God has given us and all that God has shown us. And all that God has provided for us, every breath, is unto one thing, to the glory 
of Christ. That is how we should understand our indestructible joy this morning. It is for His glory alone. The magnificence of, of Advent really heralds that God is not passive in his plan. He is not indecisive about anything. Like I said last week, we so often are indecisive about everything. We second guess almost everything when we make a decision or a choice. Even when the words are coming out of our mouth sometimes, as they're coming out, we're second guessing, should I be saying this? I do that all the time. But God is not like us. Yes, we are made in the image of God, but we are. God is wholly exclusive in his essence and his nature. And so unlike God, we are indecisive. But God is decisive in everything he does. It is impossible for God to be aloof or detached as we are oftentimes from our life and from people in our life. He is no, not aloof or detached from anything. He is not undecided or ambiguous about anything. But he is tireless in his searching for all who will come to him. He is persistent in his pursuit through Christ. He is steadfast in his seeking. He is staunch in his sending of Christ. And he is sovereign in saving. God saves by his sovereignty. God shows Christ, displays Christ, draws all people to Christ by his sovereign commands and by his word. None can come to him unless they are drawn to him by God, John says. And so God is sovereign in his saving. And we see that in the story of Advent. He leaves nothing to chance because he determines the very end from the beginning. Turn with me to Isaiah 41, if you can, for a moment. We're going to be in Isaiah 41, and then we're going to be over um, uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 2 this morning briefly. Isaiah 41, uh, I want us to see this for a moment um, with regards to this idea of God and his indestructible ends. He says this in verse uh, 22 to 27, Isaiah 41 Actually, I'll start in 21. He says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them. That we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Isaiah is, is tongue-in-cheek here talking about the idols that are being worshipped in the land of Israel and the pagan worship that is taking place in the land that has been designated for the worship of Yahweh. Isaiah comes with his tongue-in-cheek expression, sarcastically saying, bring all the false gods to me and let them do what you say they can do. He says, let them come and we may consider them. Do they know their outcomes? Do they, can they declare the things to come? Tell us what is to come hereafter. What is in the future? Do you know these things? 
Can you decipher these things from these pagan gods that you worship, that you have set in the place that is reserved alone for Yahweh? This idolatry that you are participating in with these gods, you're cheating on Yahweh. And he says, can these gods do anything that Yahweh has promised? Can they tell you the future? He goes on and says, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm. Do something. In other words, these gods that you serve, Israel, these gods don't do anything. They neither do good nor harm. They are silent. They are mute. They are ineffective. They cannot do anything that the Lord God that called you by name can do. Listen to what he says here. He says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads the clay. Who declared it from the beginning? That we might know. And beforehand, that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, he, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. That is the God of Israel that they abandoned. The only God that knows the beginning from the end. The only God that possesses an indestructible end. The only one who knows the future and knows all things. Yet you have decided to chase after gods that provide you nothing. They are empty. So turn. Turn back to the living God who has the words of life. So it is God that we see that possesses this ability and this ability alone. And so when we're thinking about the story of Advent this morning, one of the characteristics or one of the scriptures that we look to in order to give us some understanding of Christ is in Luke chapter 24. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But to lay hold of this eternal reality of Christ's coming, it is good to begin at the end of Christ's ministry. I want to pick up the story here in Luke chapter 24, verse 33. You guys are familiar with this story, and I want to just take a moment uh, to park here and just point out a couple of things. This morning we see uh, Jesus essentially uh, coming before uh, these two men that are on the road to Emmaus. This is in between his, um, his resurrection and his ascension, right? And he comes and encounters these men on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to have a conversation with them. Essentially what he does is, is he engages in a Bible study with them. That's what he does. He points them to the scriptures in order to reveal himself. And this is what he says. He underscores the simplicity and the centrality of Scripture to present and glorify himself as the Christ and the Messiah. And this is what we read in verse 33. He says this. 
And they rose that same hour. This is after Jesus had opened their minds to the scriptures. He says, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these, th these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they are startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you, why, do you doubt, why do doubts rise among your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this to them, he showed him his hands and his feet. And while they, were still, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. These are men that walked with Jesus for three years. Three years. Yet he still had to tell them. He still had to explain to them what is the purpose of the scriptures. It was to proclaim Christ. What was the point of the law? What was the point of the Psalms? What was the point of the prophets? It was to point to this day in which you are in. You are living in right now. And so we see in this exchange, God bringing to bear and to bring to fulfillment the promises that he had spoken, both in the law and in the Psalms and in the prophets. And as Christ opens their minds, I want us to think about this for a moment. How is it that we understand the revelation of Christ? How is it that we understand the scriptures and the truth? How is it that we can understand these things? Can we discern them in our own strength? Can we discern them in our own wisdom? Can we discern them in our own abilities, in our own minds? No, he said, what happens? He says, he, John, or Luke says this, he, Christ, opens up their mind to understand. He opens up their mind to understand. Without the Spirit of God bringing illumination to the truth of God, we cannot consider the reality and the gravity of what we have in front of us. You can read this all day long, but if God does not open your mind to understand, you will not receive. So continually ask God through the Holy Spirit to open your mind to the truth of Christ every day. 
And a great way to do that, a great time to do that, is in this season of Advent, where we celebrate his coming. So he opens their minds, and I'd like to believe that he brings them to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. This is what Isaiah chapter 9 talks about, brings forth to us as a representation, as an expression of God's promise that's being fulfilled in Christ. This is what Christ is talking about when he says he opens their minds to the prophets to show himself. This is maybe where he brought those two people on the road to Emmaus in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, he ministered in the final days of Israel, the northern kingdom, before and during their captivity and the invasion of the Assyrian army in that northern tribe. He also prophesied and ministered to Judah, mostly the southern kingdom, to warn them to, to, to leave their sin, to leave their idolatry, to turn, back to, Christ, to turn back to Yahweh, to turn back to the Lord. Unless you do that, you will suffer the same fate as your brothers in the northern kingdom. You will come under a different occupation from Babylon, but it will be the same thing. It will be God's judgment on you for your idolatry, for you turning from him and worshiping false gods. And so Isaiah is prophesying to the land in the midst of Israel being overtaken by Assyria. And he gives us the warnings. And he gives Judah the warnings and says, turn now. Yes, you will be also occupied because of God's coming judgment on you. And so in the midst of these prophecies, Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 9. He says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, which is the land in the north, and the land of Naphtali, which was a land in the north, northern kingdom. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. For Israel, this was a prophetic promise for a Messiah to come and deliver them from their enemies. It was a deliverance out of the judgment of God. 
Israel was not put in that place unjustly. They suffered the judgment of God because of their own actions. And they were a land and a people in deep darkness. That darkness was a sin of idolatry. Riddled with darkness. Riddled with um, rebellion against God. But Isaiah comes and says, You will not walk in darkness forever. So it is true with us as we find Christ. We don't walk in darkness forever. There was a time when we were all in darkness. There was a time where we could not understand Christ or perceive him. Or we've rejected his message at some point in our lives. I lived in hostility towards God for 25 years. Somehow God broke through my darkness. He delivered me of my sin. He showed me a better way. My life, which was once characterized by rebellion, became a life that pursued righteousness because of Christ. And this is God's promise. Israel, you were once in rebellion to me, you practiced it and you loved it and you adorned it. But there's coming a time when you will be delivered from this darkness and you will see a light and that light will shine and that light will bring life to you. And not only will that life bring life to you, it will cause what? The joy of the nation to be increased. In other words, the joy that comes with the Messiah, that indestructible joy that Christ inaugurates is a joy that is continually being increased in the life of the believer. Why? Because God has delivered us from darkness into light. He has taken our rebellion and transferred it into righteousness. He has given us a hope that only can be found in Christ. See, God promises to magnify the joy of Israel. He will increase their gladness. He will amplify their rejoicing as this anticipation builds of the coming Messiah and the salvific work that is attached to him. And embedded in this prophetic declaration is joy. It is a joy that foreshadows Christ. It is the fulfillment of God's plan. So, this indestructible joy. This prophetic word that we see in Isaiah 9 of joy is brought to bear in the centrality of Christ as we witness this plan of God in its fulfillment. And our rising affections... Our adoration comes and is rooted in this indestructible joy as we behold what he has accomplished for us. 
And we are introduced to this joy. We are introduced to this rejoicing. We are introduced to this overflow of exuberant joy and gladness because it's fastened to the heart of the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 12. This is what we read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of, Ju of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Let me just tell you something. Herod got Christmas a lot more than we do. <laughs> Herod understood Christmas. He understood Christmas so intimately that he knew that the coming of this young child, this baby in a manger, was a threat to his authority, was a threat to his kingdom, was a threat to his rule. That's how well Herod understood the story of Christmas. He says, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the, the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with what great joy exceedingly abundantly full-throated this was not a half-hearted reaction this was a rejoicing that was exceeding that was almost inexpressible. It was a joy that had been felt like nothing else before. When they had laid eyes on this child, their first reaction was to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. Look at what they did. They come before him and they rejoice exceeding with great joy. And what is their first action? Their first feeling and emotion is great joy. Their first action is worship. Look at that for a moment. Look at the connection we can find here. I don't want to read too much into this. But what is the basis and understanding and the foundation and the wellspring of our worship? It is exceedingly great and abundant joy. Not happiness. Not happiness. Not good feelings. Not positivity. But great joy. 
That is the wellspring, the foundation of our worship, regardless of what life throws at us. Regardless of what comes before us, regardless of what we must endure, regardless of the affliction that we must carry. The foundation and the wellspring of worship is joy. Joy at what Christ has done. Joy in what Christ has accomplished. Joy in what Christ will do in eternity, raising us to eternal life with new bodies, resurrected bodies, 25-year-old bodies. Let it be so, Lord. I want us to think for a moment, uh, I'm going to wrap up here. I want us to think for a moment about this Greek word, joy. Anybody Boston Bruin fans here? No? Yeah? Okay, who was one of the best, not so long ago, best defensemen the Boston Bruins have had on their team? Anybody? Who? Bobby Orr. Yeah, that was a long time ago, though. I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking recent. Anybody? Zidano, what is it? Zidano Chara, Zidano Chara. The Greek word actually for joy is the word chara or kara, kara. And this, this word here is really associated with another word called kairo or kairo. And this is often translated as rejoicing in that joy when expressed can be synonymous with rejoicing. So when we're rejoicing, we're rejoicing exceedingly, exceedingly with joy. These terms are synonymous. Rejoicing and joy, part of that same term that's used here in this verse. Kara. So why should our relationship with Christ cause in us a perpetual state of joy. Why does the Christmas season herald this reality for the Christian? Why is it that we are to participate in gladness and in delight marked by an irrepressible rejoicing? Why is this the case? Why is it that the story of Christmas heralds this reality? Look at what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Hebrews 12, 2, we see it here. The writer says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Watch this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is why the joy of Christ is inherent in the Christmas story. Christ, who for the joy 
that was set before him endured the cross. Going to the cross was the apex, the fullest expression of the joy of Christ. In other words, there was no greater delight that Christ could behold. Think about that. There is no greater delight that Christ could behold than to go to the cross. Why? Because it gave Christ such joy to live in complete obedience and submission to the indestructible plan of God. And that is why we celebrate Advent. That is why we celebrate the Christmas story. You want me to switch these? You want to try it? Let me try. Yeah, that is why we celebrate this. There is a delight that Christ beholds that is insurmountable, it is insurpassable. It is a joy that comes by going to the cross. It is a joy that comes in complete obedience and submission to the plan of the Father. In other words, the joy of Christ captured most vividly through the enduring of his shame and his suffering and his humiliation and his hanging and the disdain in his death, the joy of Christ was found in his unwavering obedience because it accomplished the perfect plans of God, inaugurated in his birth, culminating in his death. That is the joy that we have. It is indestructible. Christ goes to the cross because of the joy set before him to do all that the Father had given him to do. And that joy that he brings to the cross, as he goes to the cross and he dies and he's buried, the joy has not been defeated. Why? Because Christ rises from the dead. He rises beholding the joy that was set before him as he goes and does exactly what the Father has called him to do. And so if Christ goes to the grave and does perfectly what God the Father has shown him to do, because of that obedience, he goes to the grave and goes to the cross with an inexpressible joy, a, a, a joy that he beholds. How is it that we cannot allow the indestructible joy of Christ to reign in our lives? It is a joy that comes by a man's obedience, by God's obedience. It is the same joy set before Christ, sourced in his death, that reconciles the soul of man to the heart of God. And this reconciliation arouses the heart to overflow with an inexpressible and indestructible joy. 
I want to end here in 1 Peter 1, 8. He says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because you're obtaining through Christ the outcome of your faith. What is that outcome? The salvation of your soul. That is why it is so trivial to rely on life circumstances to bring you joy. Joy does not come even though joy comes in the morning. Joy does not come, right? And is not established by life. It is not established and not rooted in what it is we experience in life. The trivialness of life. The superficiality of life. No, these are not things that can bring us joy. What does Paul say that brings us, or what, what does Peter say that brings us joy, an inexpressible joy that's filled with glory as it exalts and magnifies Christ? What is the result of this joy? What is the, the wellspring of this joy? It is the salvation of your soul, which is the outcome of your faith. See, God sent Christ as the perfect expression, the most vivid and radiant and brilliant display of his love. The demonstration of this love should cause in the hearts of all who believe an insatiable joy, overflowing with undefinable rejoicing as we savor the worth of Christ. And is coming. Christmas inaugurates Christ's saturated joy and heralds the indestructible plan of God sourced in his promises. It is a joy that permeates the hearts of wandering souls separated from God because they have heard and received the gospel and have found redemption in Christ, causing an inexpressible rejoicing on the grounds of Christ's indestructible love saturated joy and that is the reality for us as we follow him it is a christ saturated indestructible joy that we have now access to through the power of the spirit why because it is a joy rooted in the outcome of of, of our faith which is the saving of our souls. There is nothing that can cause us to rejoice more with inexpressible joy than salvation that we've received in Christ. And it's inaugurated here in the story of Christmas. And that is our joy. That is our joy. That is now ours. We are we are, it is incapable, we are incapable of separating ourselves from that joy because of our union with Christ. Christ has solidified it. Christ has in every way sealed it by faith. And so we can stand here this morning, we can be thankful, we can be resolute, we can be certain of a joy that comes in the season of Advent, an indestructible joy that comes and demands the Christian to live 
in that reality that transcends anything that life may throw at you. And that is the reality of joy this morning in the Christmas season. Amen? Let's stand.